Masterpieces of Mystery, Ghost Stories. The Listener by Algernon Blackwood, Part 2. November 4th. I attended a curious lecture in the French Quarter on death, but the room was so hot and I was so weary that I fell asleep. The only part I heard, however, touched my imagination vividly. Speaking of suicides, the lecturer said that self-murder was no escape from the miseries of the present, but only a preparation of greater sorrow for the future. Suicides, he declared, cannot shirk their responsibilities so easily. They must return to take up life exactly where they laid it so violently down, but with the added pain and punishment of their weakness. Many of them wander the earth in unspeakable misery till they can reclothe themselves in the body of someone else, generally a lunatic or weak-minded person who cannot resist the hideous obsession. This is their only means of escape. Surely a weird and horrible idea. I wish I had slept all the time and not heard it at all. My mind is morbid enough without such ghastly fancies. Such mischievous propaganda should be stopped by the police. I'll write to the Times and suggest it. Good idea. I walked home through Greek Street, Soho, and imagined that a hundred years had slipped back into place, and De Quincey was still there, haunting the night with invocations to his just subtle and mighty drug. His vast dreams seemed to hover not very far away. Once started in my brain, the pictures refused to go away, and I saw him sleeping in that cold, tenantless mansion with a strange little waif who was afraid of its ghosts, both together in the shadows under a single horseman's cloak, or wandering in the companionship of the spectral Anne. Or later, still, on his way to the eternal rendezvous, she never was able to keep. What an unutterable gloom, what an untold horror of sorrow and suffering comes over me, as I try to realise something of what that man, boy he then was, must have taken into his lonely heart. As I came up the alley I saw a light in the top window, and a head and shoulders thrown in an exaggerated shadow upon the blind. I wondered what the sun could be doing up there at such an hour. November 5th. This morning, while writing, someone came up the creaking stairs and knocked cautiously at my door. Thinking it was the landlady, I said, come in. The knock was repeated, and I cried louder, Come in, come in! But no one turned the handle on me, and I continued my writing with a vexed, Well, stay out then, under my breath. Went on writing. I tried to, but my thoughts had suddenly dried up at their source. I could not set down a single word. It was a dark, yellow fog morning, and there was little enough inspiration in the air as it was. But that stupid woman standing just outside my door, waiting to be told again to come in, roused a spirit of vexation that filled my head to the exclusion of all else. But that stupid woman standing just outside my door waiting to be told again to come in roused a spirit of vexation that filled my head to the exclusion of all else. At last I jumped up and opened the door myself. What do you want and why in the world don't you come in? I cried out. But the words dropped into empty air. There was no one there. The fog poured up the dingy staircase in deep yellow coils, but there was no sign of a human being anywhere. I slammed the door with imprecations upon the house and its noises and went back to my work. A few minutes later, Emily came in with a letter. Were you or Mrs. Monson outside a few minutes ago knocking at my door? No, sir. Are you sure? Mrs. Monson's gone to market, and there's no one but me and a child in the old house, and I've been washing the dishes for the last hour, sir. I fancied the girl's face turned a shade paler. She fidgeted toward the door with a glance over her shoulder. Wait, Emily, I said, and then told her what I had heard. She stared stupidly at me, though her eyes shifted now and then over the articles in the room. Who was it? I asked, when I had come to the end. 
Mrs. Monson said it's only mice, she said, as if repeating a learned lesson. Mice? I exclaimed. It's nothing of the sort. Someone was feeling about outside my door. Who was it? Is it the sun in the house? Her whole manner changed suddenly, and she became earnest instead of evasive. She seemed anxious to tell the truth. Oh no, sir. There's no one in the house at all but you and me and a child, and there couldn't have been nobody at your door. As for them knocks... She stopped abruptly, as though she had said too much. Well, what about the knocks? I said more gently. Of course, she stammered. The knocks isn't mice, nor the footsteps, neither, but then... Again, she came to a full halt. Anything wrong with the house? No, no, sir. The drains is splendid. I don't mean drains, girl. I mean, did anything, anything bad ever happen here? She flushed up to the roots of her hair, and then turned suddenly pale again. She was obviously in considerable distress, and there was something she was anxious, yet afraid to tell. Some forbidden thing she was not allowed to mention. I don't mind what it was. Only I should like to know, I said encouragingly. Raising her frightened eyes to my face, she began to blurt out something about that which happened once to a gentleman that lived upstairs, when a shrill voice calling her name sounded below. Emily! Emily! It was the returning landlady, and the girl tumbled downstairs as if pulled backward by rope, leaving me full of conjectures as to what in the world could have happened to a gentleman upstairs that could in so curious a manner affect my ears downstairs. November 10th. I have done capital work, have finished the ponderous article, and had it accepted for the review, and another one ordered. I feel well and cheerful, and I have had regular exercise and good sleep. No headaches, no nerves, no liver. Those pills the chemist recommended are wonderful. Even the grey-faced landlady rouses pity in me. I am sorry for her. So worn, so weary, so oddly put together, just like the building. She looks as if she had once suffered some shock of terror and was momentarily dreading another. When I spoke to her today, very gently, about not putting the pens in the ashtray and the gloves in the bookshelf, she raised her faint eyes to mine for the first time and said with a ghost of a smile, I'll try to remember, sir. I felt inclined to pat her on the back and say, Come, cheer up and be jolly. Life's not so bad after all. Oh, I am much better. There's nothing like open air and success and good sleep. They build up as if by magic the portions of the heart eaten down by despair and unsatisfied yearnings. Even to the cats I feel friendly. When I came in at eleven o'clock tonight, they followed me to the door in a stream and I stooped down to stroke the one nearest to me. Bah, the brute hissed and spat and struck at me with her paws. The claw caught my hand and drew blood in a thin line. The others danced sideways into the darkness, screeching as though I'd done them an injury. I believe these cats really hate me. Perhaps they are only waiting to be reinforced. Then they will attack me. Ha ha. In spite of the momentary annoyance, this fancy sent me laughing upstairs to my room. The fire was out, and the room seemed unusually cold. As I groped my way over to the mantelpiece to find the matches, I realised all at once that there was another person standing beside me in the darkness. I could, of course, see nothing but my fingers. Feeling along the ledge came into forcible contact with something that was at once withdrawn. It was cold and moist. I could have sworn it was somebody's hand. My flesh began to creep instantly. "'Who's that?' I exclaimed in a loud voice. My voice dropped into the silence like a pebble into a deep well. There was no answer, but at the same moment I heard someone moving away from me across the room, in the direction of the door. It was a confused sort of footstep and the sound of garments brushing the furniture on the way. The same second my hand stumbled upon the matchbox, and I struck a light. I expected to see Mrs. Monson or Emily, or perhaps the sun, who is something on an omnibus. But the flare of the gas jet illumined an empty room. There was not a sign of a person anywhere. I felt the hair stir upon my head, 
and instinctively I backed up against the wall lest something should approach me from behind. I was distinctly alarmed, but the next minute I recovered myself. The door was opened onto the landing and I crossed the room, not without some inward trepidation, and went out. The light from the room fell upon the stairs, but there was no one to be seen anywhere, nor was there any sound on a creaking wooden staircase to indicate a departing creature. I was in the act of turning to go in again when a sound overhead caught my ear. It was a very faint sound, not unlike the sigh of wind, yet it could not have been the wind, for the night was still as the grave. Though it was not repeated, I resolved to go upstairs and see for myself what it all meant. Two senses had been affected, touch and hearing, and I could not believe that I had been deceived. So, with a lighted candle, I went stealthily forth on my unpleasant journey into the upper regions of this queer little old house. On the first landing there was only one door, and it was locked. On the second there was also only one door, but when I turned the handle it opened. There came forth to meet me the chill, musty odour that is characteristic of a long, unoccupied room. With it there came an indescribable odour. I use the adjective advisedly, though very faint, diluted as it were, it was nevertheless an odour that made my gorge rise. I had never smelt anything like it before, and I cannot describe it. The room was small and square, close under the roof, with a sloping ceiling and two tiny windows. It was cold as the grave, without a shred of carpet or a stick of furniture. The icy atmosphere and the nameless odour combined to make the room abominable to me and, after lingering a moment to see that it contained no cupboards or corners into which a person might have crept for concealment, I made haste to shut the door and went downstairs again to bed. Evidently I had been deceived after all as to the noise. In the night I had a foolish but very vivid dream. I dreamed that the landlady and another person, dark and not properly visible, entered my room on all fours, followed by a horde of immense cats. They attacked me as I lay in bed and murdered me, and then dragged my body upstairs and deposited it on the floor of that cold little square room under the roof. November 11th. Since my talk with Emily, the unfinished talk, I have hardly once set eyes on her. Mrs. Monson now attends wholly to my wants. As usual, she does everything exactly as I don't like it done. It is all too utterly trivial to mention, but it is exceedingly irritating. Like small doses of morphine often repeated, she has finally a cumulative effect. November 12th. This morning I woke early and came into the front room to get a book, meaning to read in bed till it was time to get up. Emily was laying the fire. Good morning, I said cheerfully. Mind you make a good fire, it's very cold. The girl turned and showed me a startled face. It was not Emily at all. Where's Emily? I exclaimed. You mean the girl as was here before me? Has Emily left? I came on the 6th, she replied sullenly. And she's gone then? I got my book and went back to bed. Emily must have been sent away almost immediately after our conversation. This reflection kept coming between me and the printed page. I was glad when it was time to get up. Such prompt energy, such merciless decision, seemed to argue something of importance to somebody. November 13th. The wound inflicted by the cat's claw is swollen and causes me annoyance and some pain. It throbs and itches. I'm afraid my blood must be in poor condition or it would have healed by now. I opened it with a penknife soaked in an antiseptic solution and cleaned it thoroughly. I've heard unpleasant stories of the results of wounds inflicted by cats. November 14th. In spite of the curious effect this house suddenly exercises upon my nerves, I like it. It is lonely and deserted in the very heart of London, but it is also, for that reason, quiet to work in. 
I wonder why it is so cheap. Some people might be suspicious, but I did not even ask the reason. No answer is better than a lie. If only I could remove the cats from the outside and the rats from the inside. I feel that I shall grow accustomed more and more to its peculiarities, and shall die here. Ah, oh, that expression reads queerly and gives a wrong impression. I meant live and die here. I shall renew the lease from year to year till one of us crumbles to pieces. From present indications, the building will be the first to go. November 16th. This morning I worked to find my clothes scattered about the room, and a cane chair overturned beside the bed. My coat and waistcoat looked just as if they had been tried on by someone in the night. I had horribly vivid dreams, too, in which someone covering his face with his hands kept coming close up to me, crying out as if in pain. Where can I find covering? Oh, who will clothe me? How silly, and yet it frightened me a little. It was so dreadfully real. It is now every year since I last walked in my sleep and woke up with such a shock on the cold pavement of Earl's Court Road, where I then lived. I thought I was cured, but evidently not. This discovery has rather a disquieting effect on me. Tonight I shall resort to the old trick of tying my toe to the bedpost. November 17th. Last night I was again troubled by most oppressive dreams. Someone seemed to be moving in the night up and down my room, sometimes passing into the front room, and then returning to stand beside the bed and stare intently down upon me. I was being watched by this person all night long. I never actually awoke, though I was often very near it. I suppose it was a nightmare from indigestion. For this morning I have one of my old vile headaches. Yet all my clothes lay about the floor when I awoke, but they had evidently been flung. I tossed them during the dark hours, and my trousers trailed over the step into the front room. Worse than this, though, I fancied I noticed about the room in the morning that strange fetid odour. Though very faint, its mere suggestion is foul and nauseating. What in the world can it be, I wonder? In the future I shall lock my door. November 26th. I have accomplished a lot of good work during this past week, and I have also managed to get regular exercise. I have felt well and in an equable state of mind. Only two things have occurred to disturb my equanimity. The first is trivial in itself, and no doubt to be easily explained. The upper window where I saw the light on the night of November 4th, with the shadow of a large head and shoulder upon the blind, is one of the windows in the square room under the roof. In reality, it has no blind at all. Here is the other thing. I was coming home last night in a fresh fall of snow about eleven o'clock, my umbrella low down over my head. Halfway up the alley, where the snow was wholly untrodden, I saw a man's legs in front of me. The umbrella hid the rest of his figure, but on raising it I saw that he was tall and broad and was walking, as I was, towards the door of my house. He could not have been four feet ahead of me. I had thought the alley was empty when I entered it, but might, of course, have been mistaken very easily. A sudden gust of wind compelled me to lower the umbrella, and when I raised it again not half a minute later there was no longer any man to be seen. With a few more steps I reached the door. It was closed as usual. I then noticed with a sudden sensation of dismay that the surface of the freshly fallen snow was unbroken. My own footmarks were the only ones to be seen anywhere, and though I retraced my way to the point where I had first seen the man, I could find no slightest impression of any other boots. Feeling creepy and uncomfortable, I went upstairs and was glad to get into bed. November 28th. With the fastening of my bedroom door, the disturbances ceased. I'm convinced that I walked in my sleep. Probably I untied my toe and then tied it up again. The fancied security of the locked door would alone have been enough to restore sleep to my troubled spirit and enable me to rest quietly. Last night, however, the annoyance was suddenly renewed in another and more aggressive form. I woke in the darkness with the impression that someone was standing outside my bedroom door listening. As I became more awake, the impression grew into positive knowledge. 
Though there was no appreciable sound of moving or breathing, I was so convinced of the propinquity of a listener that I crept out of bed and approached the door. As I did so, there came faintly from the next room the unmistakable sound of someone retreating stealthily across the floor. Yet as I heard it, it was neither the tread of a man nor a regular footstep, but rather it seemed to me a confused sort of crawling, almost as if someone on his hands and knees. I unlocked the door in less than a second and passed quickly into the front room, and I could feel, as by the subtlest imaginable vibrations upon my nerves, that the spot I was standing in had just that instant been vacated. The listener had moved. He was now behind the other door, standing in the passage. Yet this door was also closed. I moved swiftly and as silently as possible across the floor and turned the handle. A cold rush of air met me from the passage and sent shiver after shiver down my back. There was no one in the doorway. There was no one on the little landing. There was no one moving down the staircase. Yet it had been so quick that this midnight listener could not be very far away, and I felt that if I persevered I should eventually come face to face with him, and the courage that came so opportunely to overcome my nervousness and horror seemed born of the unwilling conviction that it was somehow necessary for my safety as well as my sanity that I should find this intruder and force his secret from him. For was it not the intent action of his mind upon my own in concentrated listening that had awakened me with such a vivid realisation of his presence? Advancing across the narrow landing, I peered down into the well of the little house. There was nothing to be seen. No one was moving in the darkness. How cold the oilcloth was to my bare feet. I cannot say what it was that suddenly drew my eyes upward. I only know that without apparent reason, I looked up and saw a person about halfway up the next turn of the stairs, leaning forward over the balustrade and staring straight into my face. It was a man. He appeared to be clinging to the rail rather than standing on the stairs. The gloom made it impossible to see much beyond a general outline, but the head and shoulders were seemingly enormous, and stood sharply silhouetted against the skylight in the roof immediately above. The idea flashed into my brain in a moment that I was looking into the visage of something monstrous. The huge skull, the mane-like hair, the wide-humped shoulders suggested in a way I did not pause to analyse that which was scarcely human, and for some seconds, fascinated by horror, I returned the gaze and stared into the dark, inscrutable countenance above me, without knowing exactly where I was or what I was doing. Then I realised in quite a new way that I was face to face with the secret midnight listener, and I stilled myself as best I could for what was about to come. The source of the rash courage that came to me at this awful moment will ever be to me an inexplicable mystery. Though shivering with fear and my forehead wet with an unholy dew, I resolved to advance. Twenty questions leaped to my lips. What are you? What do you want? Why do you listen and watch? Why do you come into my room? But none of them found articulate utterance. I began forthwith to climb the stairs, and with the first signs of my advance, he drew himself back into the shadows and began to move too. He retreated as swiftly as I advanced. I heard the sound of his crawling motion a few steps ahead of me, ever maintaining the same distance. When I reached the landing, he was halfway up the next flight, when I was halfway up the next flight, he had already arrived at the top landing. And then I heard him open the door of the little square room under the roof and go in. Immediately, though, the door did not close after him. The sound of his moving entirely ceased. At this moment, I longed for a light or a stick or any weapon whatsoever, but I had none of these things and it was impossible to go back. So I marched steadily up the rest of the stairs and in less than a minute found myself standing in the gloom face to face with the door through which this creature had just entered. For a moment, I hesitated. The door was about halfway open, and the listener was standing evidently in his favourite attitude, just behind it, listening. 
To search through that dark room for him seemed hopeless. To enter the same small space where he was seemed horrible. The very idea filled me with loathing, and I almost decided to turn back. It is strange at such times how trivial things impinge on the consciousness, with a shock as if something important and immense. Something, it might have been a beetle or a mouse, scuttled over the bare boards behind me. The door moved a quarter of an inch, closing. My decision came back with a sudden rush, as it were, and thrusting out a foot, I kicked the door so that it swung sharply back to its full extent and permitted me to walk forward slowly into the aperture of profound blackness beyond. What a queer, soft sound my bare feet made on the boards! How the blood sang and buzzed in my head! I was inside, the darkness closed over me, hiding even the windows. I groped my way round the walls in a thorough search, but in order to prevent all possibility of the other's escape, I first of all closed the door. There we were, we two, shut in together between four walls, within a few feet of one another. But with what, with whom, was I thus momentarily imprisoned? A new light flashed suddenly over the affair with a swift, illuminating brilliance, and I knew I was a fool, an utter fool. I was wide awake at last, and the horror was evaporating. My cursed nerves again, a dream, a nightmare, and the old result walking in my sleep. The figure was a dream figure. Many a time before had the actors of my dreams stood before me for some moments after I was awake. There was a chance match in my pyjama's pocket, and I struck it on the wall. The room was utterly empty. It held not even a shadow. I went quickly down to bed, cursing my wretched nerves and my foolish, vivid dreams. But as soon as ever I was asleep again, the same uncouth figure of a man crept back to my bedside, and bending over me with his immense head close to my ear, whispered repeatedly in my dreams, I want your body, I want its covering, I'm waiting for it and listening always. Words scarcely less foolish than the dream. But I wonder what that queer odour was up in the square room. I noticed it again, and stronger than ever before and it seemed to be also in my bedroom when I woke this morning. November 29th. Slowly as moonbeams rise over a misty sea in June, the thought is entering my mind that my nerves and somnambulistic dreams do not adequately account for the influence this house exercises upon me. It holds me with a fine, invisible net. I cannot escape if I would. It draws me, and it means to keep me. November 30th. The post this morning brought me a letter from Eden, forwarded from my old rooms in Earl's Court. It was from Chapter, my former Trinity chum, who was on his way home from the East, and asked for my address. I sent it to him at the hotel he mentioned, to await arrival. As I've already said, my windows command a view of the alley, and I can see an arrival without difficulty. This morning, while I was busy writing, the sound of footsteps coming up the alley filled me with a sense of vague alarm that I could in no way account for. I went over to the window and saw a man standing below, waiting for the door to be opened. His shoulders were broad, his top hat glossy, and his overcoat fitted beautifully round the collar. All this I could see, but no more. Presently the door opened and the shock to my nerves was unmistakable. When I heard a man's voice ask, Is Mr. still here? mentioning my name. I could not catch the answer, but it could only have been in the affirmative, for the man entered the hall and the door shut to behind him but I waited in vain for the sound of his steps on the stairs. There was no sound of any kind. It seemed to me so strange that I opened my door and looked out. No one was anywhere to be seen. I walked across the narrow landing and looked through the window that commands the whole length of the alley. There was no sign of a human being, coming or going. The lane was deserted. Then I deliberately walked downstairs into the kitchen and asked the grey-faced landlady if a gentleman had just that minute called for me. 
The answer given with an odd, weary sort of smile was, No! December 1st. I feel genuinely alarmed and uneasy over the state of my nerves. Dreams are dreams, but never before have I had dreams in broad daylight. I'm looking forward very much to Chapter's arrival. He is a capital fellow, vigorous, healthy, with no nerves, and even less imagination. And he has £2,000 a year into the bargain. Periodically he makes me offers. The last was to travel around the world with him as secretary, which is a delicate way of paying my expenses and giving me some pocket money. Office, however, which I invariably decline. I prefer to keep his friendship. Women could not come between us. Money might. Therefore I give it no opportunity. Chapter always laughed at what he called my fancies, being himself possessed only of that thin-blooded quality of imagination which is ever associated with the prosaic-minded man. Yet if taunted with this obvious lack, his wrath is deeply stirred. His psychology is that of the crass materialist, always a rather funny article. It will afford me genuine relief, nonetheless, to hear the cold judgment his mind will have to pass upon the story of this house, as I shall have it to tell. December the 2nd. The strangest part of it all I have not referred to in this brief diary. Truth to tell, I have been afraid to set it down in black and white. I have kept it in the background of my thoughts, preventing it as far as possible from taking shape. In spite of my efforts, however, it has continued to grow stronger. Now that I come to face the issue squarely, it is harder to express than I imagined, like a half-remembered melody that trips in the head but vanishes in the moment you try to sing it. These thoughts form a group in the background of my mind, behind my mind, as it were, and refuse to come forward. They are crouching, ready to spring, but the actual leap never takes place. In these rooms, except when my mind is strongly concentrated on my own work, I find myself suddenly dealing in thoughts and ideas that are not my own. New, strange conceptions, wholly foreign to my temperament, are forever cropping up in my head. What precisely they are is of no particular importance. The point is that they are entirely apart from the channel in which my thoughts have hitherto been accustomed to flow. Especially they come when my mind is at rest, unoccupied, when I'm dreaming over the fire, or sitting with a book which fails to hold my attention. Then these thoughts, which are not mine, spring into life and make me feel exceedingly uncomfortable. Sometimes they are so strong that I almost feel as if someone were in the room beside me, thinking aloud. Evidently my nerves and liver are shockingly out of order. I must work harder and take more vigorous exercise. The horrid thoughts never come when my mind is much occupied. Waiting and, as it were, alive... What I have attempted to describe above came first upon me gradually after I had been some days in the house and then grew steadily in strength. The other strange thing has come to me only twice in all these weeks. It appalls me. It is the consciousness of the propinquity of some deadly and loathsome disease. It comes over me like a wave of fever heat and then passes off, leaving me cold and trembling. The air seems for a few seconds to become tainted. So penetrating and convincing is the thought of this sickness that on both occasions my brain has turned momentarily dizzy and through my mind, like flames of white heat, have flashed the ominous names of all the dangerous illnesses I know. I can no more explain these visitations than I can fly, yet I know there is no dreaming about the clammy skin and palpitating heart which they always leave as witnesses of their brief visit. Most strongly of all was I aware of this nearness of a mortal sickness when on the night of the 28th I went upstairs in pursuit of the listening figure. When we were shut in together in that little square room under the roof, I felt that I was face to face with the actual essence of this invisible and malignant disease. Such a feeling never entered my heart before, and I pray to God it may never again. There, now I have confessed. 
I have given some expression at least to the feelings that so far I have been afraid to see in my own writing. For since I can no longer deceive myself, the experiences of that night, 28th, were no more than a dream than my daily breakfast as a dream, and the trivial entry in this diary by which I sought to explain away an occurrence that caused me unutterable horror was due solely to my desire not to acknowledge in words what I really felt and believed to be true. The increase that would have accrued to my horror by so doing might have been more than I could stand. December 3rd. I wish chapter would come. My facts are already marshalled and I can see his cool grey eyes fixed incredulously on my face as I relate them. The knocking at my door, the well-dressed caller, the light in the upper window and a shadow upon the blind, the man who preceded me in the snow, the scattering of my clothes at night, Emily's arrested confession, the landlady's suspicious reticence, the midnight listener on the stairs, those awful subsequent words in my sleep, and above all and hardest to tell the presence of the abominable sickness and the stream of thoughts and ideas that are not my own. I can see Chapter's face and I can almost hear his deliberate words. You've been at the tea again, and underfeeding, I expect, as usual. Better see my nerve, doctor, and then come with me to the south of France. For this fellow, who knows nothing of disordered liver or high-strung nerves, goes regularly to a great nerve specialist, with the periodical belief that his nervous system is beginning to decay. December 5th. Ever since the incident of the listener, I have kept a nightlight burning in my bedroom, and my sleep has been undisturbed. Last night, however, I was subjected to a far worse annoyance. I woke suddenly and saw a man in front of the dressing-table regarding himself in the mirror. The door was locked as usual. I knew at once it was the listener. He was stooping forward over the mirror. His back was turned to me, but in the glass I saw the reflection of a huge head and face illumined fitfully by the flicker of the nightlight. The spectral grey of very early morning stealing in round the edges of the curtains lent an additional horror to the picture, for it fell upon the hair that was tawny and mane-like hanging about a face whose swollen rugose features bore the once-seen, never-forgotten leonine expression of. I dare not write down that awful word, but by way of corroborative proof I saw in the faint mingling of the two lights that there were several bronze-coloured blotches on the cheeks which the man was evidently examining with great care in the glass. The lips were pale and very thick and large. One hand I could not see, but the other rested on the ivory back of my hairbrush. Its muscles were strangely contracted, the fingers thin to emaciation, the back of the hand closely puckered up. It was like a big grey spider crouching to spring, or the claw of a great bird. A full realisation that I was alone in the room with this nameless creature almost within arm's reach of him overcame me to such a degree that when he suddenly turned and regarded me with small beady eyes, wholly out of proportion to the grandeur of their massive setting, I sat bolt upright in bed, uttered a loud cry, and then fell back in a dead swoon of terror upon the bed. December 6th. When I came to this morning, the first thing I noticed was that my clothes were strewn all over the floor. I found it difficult to put my thoughts together and have sudden access of violent trembling. I determined that I would go at once to Chapter's Hotel and find out when he is expected. I cannot refer to what happened in the night. It's too awful, and I have to keep my thoughts rigorously away from it. I feel light-headed and queer, couldn't eat any breakfast and have twice vomited with blood. While dressing to go out, a hansom rattled up noisily over the cobbles, and a minute later the door opened, and to my great joy in walked the very subject of my thoughts. The sight of his strong face and quiet eyes had an immediate effect upon me, and I grew calmer again. His very handshake was a sort of tonic. 
as I listened eagerly to the deep tones of his reassuring voice, and the visions of the night-time paled a little, I began to realise how very hard it was going to be to tell him my wild, intangible tale. Some men radiate an animal vigour that destroys the delicate woof of a vision and effectually prevents its reconstruction. Chapter was one of these men. We talked of incidents that had filled the interval since we last met, and he told me something of his travels. He talked, and I listened, but so full was I of the horrid thing I had to tell that I made a poor listener. I was forever watching my opportunity to leap in and explode it all under his nose. Before very long, however, it was borne in upon me that he too was merely talking for time. He too held something of importance in the background of his mind, something too weighty to let fall till the right moment presented itself. So that during the whole of the first half hour we were both waiting for the psychological moment in which properly to release our respective bombs, and the intensity of our mind's action set up opposing forces that merely sufficed to hold one another in check and nothing more. As soon as I realised this, therefore, I resolved to yield. I renounced for the time my purpose of telling my story, and had the satisfaction of seeing that his mind, released from the restraint of my own, at once began to make preparations for the discharge of its momentous burden. The talk grew less and less magnetic, the interest waned, the descriptions of his travels became less alive, there were pauses between his sentences. Presently he repeated himself, his words clothed no living thoughts. The pauses grew longer. Then the interest dwindled altogether and went out like a candle in the wind. His voice ceased, and he looked up squarely into my face with serious and anxious eyes. The psychological moment had come at last. I say, he began, and then stopped short. I made an unconscious gesture of encouragement, but said no word. I dreaded the impending disclosure exceedingly. A dark shadow seemed to precede it. I say, he blurted out at last, what in the world made you ever come to this place? To these rooms, I mean. They're cheap, for one thing, I began, and central, and they're too cheap, he interrupted. Didn't you ask what made them so cheap? It never occurred to me at the time. There was a pause in which he avoided my eyes. For God's sake, go on, man, and tell it, I cried, for the suspense was getting more than I could stand in my nervous condition. This was where Blount lived so long, he said quietly and where he died. You know, in the old days, I often used to come here and see him and do what I could to alleviate his... He stuck fast again. Well, I said with great effort, please go on, faster. But, Chapter went on, turning his face to the window with a perceptible shiver, he finally got so terrible I simply couldn't stand it, though I always thought I could stand anything. It got on my nerves and made me dream and haunted me day and night. I stared at him and said nothing. I'd never heard of Blount in my life and didn't know what he was talking about. But all the same, I was trembling, and my mouth had become strangely dry. This is the first time I've been back here since, he said almost in a whisper, and upon my word it gives me the creeps. I swear it isn't fit for a man to live in. I never saw you look so bad, old man. I've got it for a year, I jerked out with a forced laugh. Signed the lease and all. I thought it was rather a bargain. Chapter shuddered and buttoned his overcoat up to his neck. Then he spoke in a low voice, looking occasionally behind him as though he thought someone was listening. I too could have sworn someone else was in the room with us. He did it himself, you know, and no one blamed him a bit. His sufferings were awful. The last two years he used to wear a veil when he went out, and even then it was always in a closed carriage. Even the attendant who had nursed him for so long was at length obliged to leave. 
Extremities of both the lower limbs were gone, dropped off, and he moved about the ground on all fours with a sort of crawling motion. The odour, too, was I was obliged to interrupt him here. I could hear no more details of that sort. My skin was moist. I felt hot and cold by turns, for at last I was beginning to understand. Poor devil, Chapter went on. I used to keep my eyes closed as much as possible. He always begged to be allowed to take his veil off, and asked if I minded very much. Used to stand by the open window. He never touched me, though. He rented the whole house. Nothing would induce him to leave it. Did he occupy these very rooms? No, he had the little room on the top floor, a square one just under the roof. He preferred it because it was dark. These rooms are too near the ground, and he was afraid people might see him through the windows. The crowd had been known to follow him up to the very door, and then stand below the windows in the hope of catching a glimpse of his face. But there were hospitals. He wouldn't go near one, and they didn't like to force him. You know, they say it's not contagious, so there was nothing to prevent his staying here if he wanted to. He spent all his time reading medical books, about drugs and so on. His head and face were something appalling. It was like a lion's. I held up my hand to arrest further description. He was a burden to the world, and he knew it. One night, I suppose, he realised it too keenly to wish to live. He had the free use of drugs, and in the morning he was found dead on the floor. Two years ago, that was, and they said then he still had several years to live. Then in heaven's name, I cried, unable to bear the suspense any longer. Tell me what it was he had, and be quick about it. I thought you knew, he exclaimed with genuine surprise. I thought you knew. He leaned forward, and our eyes met. Find the Lawn Turner Supernatural Thriller series on Audible, read by Edmund Bloxham.